0: Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. My guest on this episode is Nicola Wynn-Stanley. Nicola is the author of six picture books, including her most recent, How to Teach Your Cat a Trick in Five Easy Steps published by Tundra Books in 2022. Nicola's books have received numerous award nominations, including the Marilyn Bailey Picture Book Award and the Governor General's Award. CM Reviews called How to Teach Your Cat a Trick, a funny, sweet story that highlights what all cat owners know. Cats will do what they want, when they want. In our conversation, Nicola talks about the long gestation period of picture books, the social anxiety that makes her dislike making in-person author appearances, and her shift away from making children's books, with a forthcoming collection of short stories for adults. There needs to be a better term for like adult publishing because whenever I say adult publishing, I'm. It sounds like porn. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a better term for like children's versus and grown-ups. Grown-up books sounds like
1: kind of babyish.
0: Yeah. It, yeah. Exactly. Everyone I've spoken to there's this expectation, even if you are a thriller writer, that you get this 18 months, two years between books. Whereas a children's writer, I mean, you've had books almost every year, you know, since you've started publishing books in like 2011. Oh, you've had a lot of books. I mean, every year, every two years, you've been on a very quick turnaround.
1: Yes, yeah, I've published six, but it doesn't seem very quick to me. I mean, I know other children's authors who are really quick, they're coming out every season. Um, I'm not that prolific, or I'm not that marketable. So um, I don't get published that often. But it, I mean, on the schedule, the publishing schedule is way longer than, say, fiction. So often, when I sign a book, I'm looking at publication, four years later. Three oh, wow.
0: Later. I mean, there are, there are cases where you sign a book, a novel or a collection of short stories, and you have that, you have a long wait just because a publisher's schedule is so backed up. But normally it's 18 months, two years at the most, but four years, that's a long stretch. Is that because there's so much production that has to go into it? Or is it because literally they are booked up that far I, in advance? I
1: think it's both. Their production schedule is much longer because. I mean, and this is picture books, because they have to find the illustrator um, do the deal with the illustrator, whatever that deal is, and then, then the illustrations go through a whole editorial process, the same as the text. And the text gets done at the same time, but it's hard to make it kind of all come together. So that can take quite a while. And then the printing takes longer because it's four-color printing and all of that kind of stuff. so yeah, it's just sort of an unwieldy process. So really slow at the other end. I mean, I know that, um, you know, when you send manuscripts out to publishers it takes forever for them to get back to you. That's just if, if they get back to you at all. But with kids books, it's like, super, super long. And even with um, my editor, I've worked at a, with Tundra for my for most of my books. You know, if I send a manuscript to her, I can wait a year before I hear anything at all. A um, year? Yeah.
0: That's that. I mean, I've heard that in with all kinds of different publishers and books, but that still astounds me uh, that that it would take that long to. Uh, yeah, just I- to say yes.
1: People I know who publish—I I don't know if it's the same for adult books—but who publish kids' books are—they're really nice people, right? They're like they're really lovely and they like child things, and so they're really sweet. And um, it really uh, gets to them to have to say no, so they spend a long time kind of thinking about why it's a no, and crafting a sort of very long email about why it's a no, and. Um, tying themselves in knots over it a little bit, feeling really anxious about <laughs> it. Uh, and at one point, I just said to Sam, "You know what? If it's a no, just shoot me an email. No, <laughs> I, like I'm fine with that. I I get that there are myriad reasons why you don't want my work, and and I'm at this stage I'm not going to take it personally.
0: I was actually going to ask that if if it's if there's this feeling of like it's actually worse if you just make me wait that long than if you would just give me the quick tear off the band-aid thing of like, then it feels almost more like a business decision. It's not personal. It's just, yes, this doesn't work for us. Sorry. Send us something else as opposed to like, ah, I don't want to make you sad. And I don't want to make you cry. Then, then you start to take it personally. And then you're like, I'm like, should, should I see this as a personal decision that?
1: Yeah. Or that, you know, I mean, we are teachers, right? So we know sometimes with with really, with students who are really struggling, we're going to give really kind and gentle feedback to just bring out whatever we can. Um, and it feels a bit like that, like, oh, you're being so kind and nice to me, because it's really, really bad. And, you know, <laughs> you know? so,
0: It's like the, uh, it's like a breakup conversation when someone starts now, I listen, Um, it's that tone of voice where you're like, Oh, no, this is this, there's no way this goes well. Can you just like throw a drink in my face or (laughs) leave my clothes on the yard or something? I am interested in that four year stretch in how your thinking about a book changes over those four years. I mean, by the time the book comes out, is your head your creative thinking so far down the road that you're like, yes, this is a book, but I'm actually way down the road on something else.
1: Absolutely, yeah, it's a, it's a very strange feeling. I mean, it's nice, you know, when the box arrives with the books, and for picture book authors who don't illustrate, it's so nice because you get to see the illustrations. It's like this gift you get from the illustrator, which is amazing. So it's really nice to see that. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, this thing, oh yeah, I wrote that like eight years ago. And and then you know launching it is I just oh, I just find it excruciating. I'm sure lots of people think oh I'm going to write a book and they really imagine the book launch like this this great party where they're the, the ball of the ball. But I hate them. And I mean I, I'm very socially anxious anyway, so it's bad enough. But um, oh, it just they're just excruciating. I, I just. <laughs> I feel sort of like I have to do them because I don't know. I mean, the books, it's likely it's going to disappear pretty quickly anyway. So you may as well give it a little bit of attention. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, this thing. I wrote this. Um, I can't even really remember what happens anymore. It's really am. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm certain there are writers newer writers who are listening to this maybe unpublished writers screaming at you right now because they're like i would love to have a book launch that would i would be the bell in the ball that would be the best birthday slash wedding slash whatever party you could possibly uh provide for my for for me
1: um you know my first one was i loved my first one that was super exciting obviously you know it's your first book and all your friends come and um at that time i knew lots of people with small children so they were all their kids it was great i mean we had it at Type books in the basement um but you, you get to the point where it's like oh i'm asking my friends to come to another one of my book launches and and um and most of my friends now have grown-up kids too so i'm just desperately trying to draw in little kids because it's a picture book launch and so it's not like I'm going to do a reading for the audience unless there's a bunch of four and five-year-olds there so you know and and it's not uh, um you know I'd be totally into the wine and cheese thing doesn't go down so well with school children. So, you know, you don't get sort of any social lubricant and it's in the afternoon and it's all very wholesome and and it's, I just, I just find them very hard.
0: Well, I can, I can confirm, and this is in the interest of full disclosure that we are friends and I have come to some of your book events, but I, I did notice that I'm not on the invite list anymore. Cause I think you've, you've had that feeling of like, I can't bug people to come to my launches anymore.
1: <laughs> oh i mean i'm sure you were supposed to be i think you were supposed to be i think you were away when i launched my last book oh okay is that what i told you (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) see
0: (laughs) but i did come to an event you did um last summer or it was like a street event street like a sidewalk outdoor event uh here in hamilton
1: that That was the launch
0: launch. there you go i was there and you you said something very similar to me that you're saying right now. <laughs> you're like, <"This> is... <laughs> I mean, I,
1: like I am super socially anxious, right? It's weird because I'm a teacher and when I teach, I do the performing thing. But in social situations, I'm just like constantly dying inside. So things like that. And I'm, I'm guessing that's true for a lot of authors Um, who I i imagine tend to be introverts and so all this sort of extraneous stuff to actually writing is quite the process
0: i think it's true for a lot of performers too like i think i've i've read interviews and i've read profiles and biographies of comedians and singers who have no trouble walking up on a stage in front of hundreds and thousands of people and just giving and giving and giving but then they walk off stage and they completely shut down and someone tries to chat with them and they they don't know how to make the conversation. There's a party after the show and they just want to go back to a hotel and, yeah. you know, eat cheesies and watch a movie or something yeah. silently. Yeah. They can deal with it with delivering. But when it's a small, intimate interaction and something is being required that they be present and be spontaneous, then something something goes wrong.
1: Yeah, you just feel sort of on the spot. I mean, I have to do, or um, well, I don't have to, but I also do school visits, right? Something that picture book authors do to support the book and also to make some more money, you will go to school and you'll go to a class. Um, and when I started doing them, also, I found them excruciating, um, partly because you, you know, I'm a picture book author, I'm not a children's performer. And so, I would have my little book and and get okay, so we're going to bring 400 kids into the gym. And they're from age four to 11. And you've got them for an hour, which is just impossible for a start. And, you know, just so scary. And when I first started doing them, I really had this mindset, like, they don't want to see me. They don't know who I am no one, I just wrote this dumb book. Like, no one reads this book, no one's going to buy it. And, and my friend Joyce Grant said to me, you have to stop thinking like that. You just have to go in there and think, I am the best. I'm an author. I'm amazing. Because if you don't, you won't get through it. And so I actually try and give myself that self-talk before I do them. And I try and prepare myself as kind of a famous person. Um, even though i not right. But I have to kind of just turn that off in my head. Otherwise I just feel like I'm going to wet my pants. I'm going hear it flying.
0: That I would imagine too, that, that the upper end of that age scale is what partly what makes that even more terrifying. I mean, keeping four and five-year-olds entertained is, is a matter of keeping making loud noises and keeping moving all the time but keeping an 11 or 12 year old entertained that's when you're moving into the like cynicism zone and the yeah. i'm too cool for this zone and
1: yeah half have them already smoking weed yeah you know what? i think like seven eight nine is the sweet spot um some of them still read picture picture books. actually a lot of them do and you can talk to them more about writing and uh they just they have interesting questions. And the little ones are really, really cute. And, you know, I often try to create a bit of chaos, and I get them jumping up and down and yelling and screaming, which the teachers do not appreciate, because I completely hype them up before they go back to class. But I've got to fill that time, you know, I've got 45 minutes, I gotta, I don't know what to do with you. So
0: And in that over that four years that 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 full four years that a book is being produced kind of sometimes you're in get you're connected with it sometimes it's happening somewhere uh disconnected from you do you ever have moments where you almost want to like withdraw the book and try something else or you always in other words when you see it three years in, are you like, can we just rework this? Can I, or do you just have to step back and go, this is the project, it's already being done?
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy with that process because of the illustration process. Um, my editing, my substantive editing is usually super light. I mean, it's, there are not many words anyway, there's not that much you can do. So the editing process for me is, is it doesn't take long at all. I mean, we, there's probably two or three emails back and forth, maybe two days worth of conversation. and um, But then the illustrations start coming, and I see the roughs, and I can see the roughs in relation to the words, and then I see the, the color pages, and then, you know, so I keep seeing it at different stages, and kind of being brought to life, and it becomes something different, because it's, it's really, truly collaborative, right? So, I don't choose the illustrator sometimes they get sometimes an editor will say we're thinking this person and this person who do you think would be better but not very often um so they choose the illustrator and then you know i just kind of leave them to it i i don't know if everyone is like this but i really have nothing much to say about the illustrations except well they look fantastic because i think that's that's their part, and they have to bring to it what they want to bring to it, because um, it's two of us. You know, it's it's sort of not, it's not my book. It's now our book.
0: I was asked to do an event, um, it was a virtual launch event for a, a picture book called Weekend Dad that I really like by Nassim Harab. And at the event, we had Nassim and her illustrator, and I'm blanking on the name of her illustrator, and it's a well-known illustrator. Um, and I I talked a little bit about this process, and Nassim said, This is the first time i am ever actually speaking to this person. <laughs> this is, so that's part of what this is so what's so great about this is they had no connection together. And I know that a lot of children's publishers, children's editors like to keep that church and state separation so that you two don't gang up on them and, and completely take the project in a, in a direction they don't want it to go. Has that been your experience that you two are kept fairly apart?
1: I don't know if we're actively kept apart, but we're certainly not brought together. Uh, yeah, we just, partly because we're working at different times, like my part's done and then they're working with the illustrator. So it's not like we're working in tandem, creating the book as, as one thing at a time. You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah, I mean, my illustrator for my last book is, is Zoe C. And I've kind of spoken to her a little bit on Instagram. It's,
0: That's the extent of it. Yeah. yeah. Frank Viva is the illustrator for Weekend Dad. That's I apologize to Frank for blanking on that because he's such a good children's book illustrator and creator himself. With the book How to Teach Your Cat a Trick, which was your most recent um, picture book, obviously it's a sequel to how to give your cat a bath. Did you always have a plan that you would build on that first book or was it the editor's idea or?
1: No, it was my idea. I mean, originally I had, uh, it was not how to teach your cat a trick. I had sort of four how to books with the same premise that the, the how to the instructions get messed up with what's actually happening in the illustrations and, and they were not all, Animal based, they were all different things. Um,
0: was it like how to give your mom a bath, or how to give your yeah, grand, your well, uncle? How to
1: surprise your mother. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then I guess Sam made Sam just liked the cat one, so we worked on that, and uh, and I still had, you know, had the back of my mind that it could be another one with the same structure. And I, it was going to be how to teach your dog a trick. And I was I was speaking to someone at my work, kind of telling him about the idea. And he looks at me and he goes, well, that's dumb. I'm like, okay. And he goes, it's easy for dogs to learn tricks. It won't be funny. I'm like, of course. Of course it's dumb. It's that, that's just a how-to book. So, so I do that into a cat. But it's a funny sequel because it's, um, it's not the same characters, because it's not the same illustrator. Am my illustrator for how to teach your cat Bath. i feel so funny talking talk about these books on your serious podcast <laughs> <laughs> the other ones um so that was john martz and he he didn't want to do a sequel i guess he didn't want to get locked into a series uh so yeah it was a bit surprising but it's fine and um so we changed the illustrator so we changed the characters now it's a boy and it's a different cat and it's a dog as well.
0: so I was gonna ask you about the change of illustrators and I was really hoping that there would be some sort of scandal (laughs) that uh that John got cancelled or you know dang I also have to wonder what are your feelings about just before those books come out like what are your expectations around what's this going to do you've already said basically that the book comes out and then it disappears so that tells me your expectations aren't um hugely elevated
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it disappears and it doesn't disappear. Um, it, it depends on the book. Uh, children's books actually can kind of have pretty long legs because of the way children's awards work. Um, for instance, How to Give Your Cat a Bath, which came out three years ago now, I think, is currently on the Reader's Choice Awards in North Carolina. So that's, so that's giving it another push.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. So those those things can kind of keep going. And then there are quite a few children's awards, uh, which again, is sort of a year later. So the initial sales may be slow and then the awards kind of happen and things get picked up Um, and it's a bit cumulative, right? So the more books you have, the more people know you exist. So, you know, that's. that's okay. I, I mean my first four books. My first book, maybe her first book sold out the advance. And we can explain advances and royalties to people that they're listening if if you want to, but it sold out the advance and then they finished the book. My next two have both nearly sold out their advances. How to give your a cat a bath? Ah oh, sold like twenty-two thousand copies. So people listening, that is a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that was just a surprise, right? You can't, I don't know, sometimes it goes and sometimes it doesn't.
0: It's a weird, it's a weird gamble each time, like the thing you, you fully expect to happen does not happen and there's no explanation for it. And then the the one where you're like, "Mm, I don't know, this is a tricky one. And then suddenly that takes off. And again, nothing you can point to that says, oh yes, that's, clearly that was, everyone was waiting for this to, to yeah. appear.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Can you, uh, you going back to the advance thing, can you explain that uh, a bit for, for people listening who maybe don't understand what that means to earn out in advance?
1: Yeah, so when you, when your book gets accepted, you're offered in an advance, and I can tell you the advance on my very first book was three and a half, no, it was $3,000. And uh, so the, the, I'll get to the rules, so $3,000 and then they print a bunch of books and then you have to sell enough books so that your royalty equals $3,000 to start getting further royalties. Well, wow, I'm doing a really bad job at explaining this.
0: <laughs> you get they give you a chunk of money and you have to basically earn yeah, to enough to enough make that. Yeah, to
1: make the money. Although if you don't, if they give you an advance of 3000, the book is published, you sell 10 books, you get to keep all your advance, but you'll never make any more money. Once you've sold enough books to cover that advance, then you start getting more money. Sort of every six months, you get a royalty check.
0: It's like they've loaned you a certain amount of money, but they said, well, we're not giving you any royalties on your books until we get enough money that we, the same amount that we we loaned you in the first place. That's
1: right. But you'd never have to pay that loan back.
0: But you don't have to pay that loan back unless you cancel the contract. Like unless the book yes. doesn't come out, then yeah. you got to give your advance back. So I think I think that's a good explanation because I also think there's some experienced authors who are probably going, wow, advances can be earned out? That happens? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's only happened to be once. So I I remember going out to dinner with some friends when I signed my first book and uh, I think there were four or five of us and after dinner, they all kind of looked at me and they said, well, are you paying? I'm like, no, as if I had just got a $50,000 advance or something. I'm like, I am a single mother. I just made three thousand dollars. I am not paying for dinner. So yeah, it's it's just the economics are a lot more meager than most people expect them to be. I think.
0: Because it's you, your name on the cover, and an illustrator's name, and you two are brought together, kind of like a boy band, like yeah. someone someone puts you two to get puts the talent together, and yeah. and you create this thing. Michael Marchenko, who is best known for illustrating Robert Munch books and is so well known for doing the Munch books that I often see books by other authors that he has illustrated. And I always think I bet those sell really well because people grab them because they look like Robert Munch books. They're so, that look is, and that aesthetic.
1: That's the interesting thing is I think that probably the pictures sell the book. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Um people will pick it up because they like the way it looks. But then they might persist with it because they like the story. If they don't like the story, if it's, you know, too long or boring, like my earlier books or whatever, they might um, not actually buy it or take it home from the library. So it's definitely the gateway.
0: And as someone who's worked in this process, six times now, you've made six of these, when you pick up a picture book by someone else do you ever spot those odd because you sometimes it's discordant sometimes you'll see a picture book where like those aren't the right images for this story like they don't quite match or you pick up a picture book and you're like these pictures are amazing but this story doesn't quite match up to what the pictures are promising do you see it differently as a practitioner? I mean, you were obviously reading a lot of these as 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 a mom years ago, so you you get that into your head as well. But as someone who has worked on these for years, do you do take do you look at them now with the eye of someone who who makes them yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I probably looked at them. I probably all parents look at them like that because for me, it's mostly wow, these pictures are amazing. And they're like, oh, this story is kind of weak. And <clears throat> my kids loved being read to. And so if the story didn't go, it just didn't go. The pictures weren't enough to hold it. It really had to work together. Um, I think sometimes I- I'm, I'm generalizing here, I don't want anyone to get offended, but s- sometimes people who are illustrators. They also write a story. They might start by illustrating, and then they might add the story to their illustrations. Um, I think they probably often go through a bigger editorial process, and in that case often it's the illustrations that that are really holding the book up. Um, There are people who do both amazingly well. It's not to say that illustrators can't write, but I'm sure everyone's seen a case with this amazing Author illustrated where the pictures knock it out of the park and the story's like, eh.
0: You mentioned, by the way, you said something about how and I don't accept this as a as a comment, but you said your your early books were sort of more texty and and boring. That's the term you used. I'm not using that term. <laughs> but I do notice that how to give your cat a bath and how to teach your cat a trick, the text is much more spare.
1: Yes. I mean my my early books are quite wordy and um, sort of lyrical and, um, they use lots of big words, which many people have objected to on Goodreads, <laughs> and...
0: They know everything on Goodreads.
1: One review oh, was quite upset I used the word, I think it was the word bulky. How can a kid expect to know the word bulky?
0: Oh God. I mean,
1: there are much more complex words in The Pirate's Bed than that. And I always thought, well, they're picture books, you read them with your kid. So you can use big words, because when you get to a word they don't know, they go, what does that mean? And you tell them. And that's how you get language. But anyway, but my my daughter, Audie, who you know, um, when she was very small, she just loved books. And we could read really long, wordy picture books. And I was very tired. (laughs) Uh, So just sitting down and reading a long book with a lot of words was a good way to kill quite a bit of time. And I think um, since then, the word count that publishers want has got shorter and shorter, and you know, I, I can see why. I also think we should resist that a little bit because there are kids, um, your son is one, who are big readers and they want this this fuller story. Um, they they want to spend more time with it. They want to learn those words. How to give your cat a bath and how to teach teach. Had a trick, I actually thought of this as the kind of book that a child will share with an adult as a book that a kid could actually learn to read themselves. That's why they're so repetitive and why they use um, very basic language. It was almost kind of an early reader idea. I, I, I don't know, often when people are looking at books and, and considering them, they almost seem to be thinking of them as some kind of performance. and some of my longer books, when I've read them in context, you know, with a bunch of kids on the ground. Oh, boy, they seem long. I'm like, <gasps> chunks, and I'm flipping the pages and the kids are getting antsy. I'm like, Oh, my God, why did I write so many words? Um, but in my head, when I wrote them, that wasn't what they were for. They were for an adult and a child to sit down for a good amount of time together and really, really kind of breathe in a story. You know?
0: And probably specifically they were written, the adult being you and the child being your child, you were in the mindset of, I could read this to my own child who would actually really enjoy these long sentences, long stories, lots of text.
1: And I thought that there are kids out there who want these long stories.
0: It reminds me of a, a horrific story that was going around a few weeks ago. A director who had made a movie for a camera which streaming platform whether it was netflix or uh you know paramount online or crave or something and want and it was you know this action movie fun action movie nothing cerebral or intense not not a uh you know long dramatic film but they wanted to start with a um long drive through a mountain tunnel and i guess it was an homage to a classic another classic film that begins with a drive through a tunnel and it was a beautiful actor driving the car and it would probably be a beautiful car in a beautiful setting but the producer said no because our uh, metrics say that if something doesn't happen within the first three or four minutes uh, people will click off there has to be action happening within the th- first three or four minutes which again speaks to that mentality yeah. that people can get into, that things have to happen right away. A children's book has to be really quick and fast, yeah. and you can't have long sentences because kids won't. And I always wonder if that's a bit of a um, self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it's I a bit of so. a vicious circle here. It's
1: that data-driven mentality, right? Instead of, you know, you let the data dictate what you do, rather than doing things that will transform the data. Right? I mean, I'm a bit the same with a a lot of kids books at the moment. Again, not all of them, but a lot of them are heavily issues based kids books. And part of me is like, okay, but don't someone just want a story? Don't they just want something funny? Do we need to have three year olds worried about everything in the world and having this message that it's their job to save it? You know, of course, they're a place for those books. It just feels a bit like, is not a lot of room for other things right now. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm exaggerating. I'm sure there are lots of books like that out there.
0: Um. I used to be a a children's book editor, not a children's, uh, sorry, children's review editor. Um, so I, I didn't edit the books, but I would edit reviews of those books. And so I would see a lot of children's books. They would get sent to me and I would see what all the new books are. And every season there would be a few that I kind of called the um, the Palestinian shepherd book. And they could be very good and they could be great stories. I actually have read many Deborah Ellis books and her books kind of fit into that genre. And she is a great gripping writer. She knows how to tell she knows how to tell a story really well on top of dealing with these incredibly dark and important issues. But I always thought maybe unfairly, like those feel more like award fodder and librarians love them and teachers love them. My instinct was always kids kind of want animals kids and
1: driving buses and
0: balloons and farts and snot and like they they don't necessarily want climate apocalypse or you know institutionalized bigotry or something I mean that there are other ways to to deal with that yeah. but
1: I thought it jumped the shark a little bit when I saw a biography of Dr. Fauci a picture book biography of Dr. Fauci Oh okay. yeah no, no, <laughs> come on. Maybe it sold wonderfully well. I don't know, but boy, I wouldn't pick that up.
0: I just want to turn to a more cheerful uh, topic, which you mentioned Goodreads reviews and reviews in general. <laughs> Given that you, over that long process, and the book comes out and you feel like, oh, this is a thing I worked on years ago and I'm on to something else now, how does it feel when you read reviews? Do you feel like they are speaking directly to you? Or do you feel like, oh, that's just a the thing they're talking about that's slightly, slightly disconnected from me?
1: It, it does feel slightly disconnected when I see the review, although that doesn't stop me from getting irritated. <laughs> I, I don't mind if people say things, make criticisms that are valid, obviously. Um, I can't remember who it was, it was an actual reviewer reviewed a bedtime yarn. And one of their criticisms was, it wasn't really about knitting. So and often with kids books, a lot of people, I mean, this is more of a good reads phenomenon than anything else, they sort of, they really want to know the moral. Well, what does this teach kids? No. And I really don't really like stories that Teach kids things, obviously. Um, you know what? What's wrong with just reading a book for fun? Because it's enjoyable. That's okay.
0: Yeah, I think, especially with kids, it's just a reading habit. You want to encourage a habit of reading, and it doesn't really matter what the content is. I mean, you don't want to read them the child's version of Mein Kampf or something. You want to keep it to some extent. Uh, <laughs> Some level of integrity and nobility, but
1: it's the it's the moralistic nature of a lot of kids' reviewing which you don't get as much in in adult reviews. Adult now, although I'm just going to think of porn now all the time. But <laughs> this idea that it should be a kids' book should be good for you in sort of a in a moral, upstanding way.
0: And you mentioned that kids' books. As again, distinct from you know the grown-up kind, they can have a very long second life. They can have a long afterlife because people are aging out, but people are aging in as well.
1: If if your book gets enough traction in the first run, like to, to there are new books coming all the time, right? As you know, as you you talk about on this podcast, so you've really got to get a lot of traction right at the beginning to ride that wave. Otherwise, it would just be the new thing coming down the line.
0: But presumably with a, a, a five or six-year-old picking up your book in the library is not going to have any sense of hot new book, you know, hot new books for spring. These are the five books you need to read this week. They're like, this is a book and you are the person who made it. And that's just forever. It doesn't matter if you made it, yeah. you know, eight or nine years ago. It's, it's the eternal present.
1: Yes, I I think that's particularly true with my books with a bedtime yarn, uh, because um, it's quite a, it's a book that parents kind of like too. And because it's about sleep, uh, it, it sort of goes through those rounds, you know, the next round of parents with a kid that doesn't sleep might get recommended to them and it, it doesn't sell tons, but it just kind of clicks away steadily you know a couple of copies a week kind of thing
0: your next book presumably is it, and you can correct me if it's actually going to be your next technically your next book yes. is not going to be a kid's book
1: yeah well I mean first of all I'm really not writing kids books at all anymore um I have probably six finished kids books manuscripts that I have tried and failed with so I'm just kind of putting that aside. I'm not around little children anymore. And, and so I just, it's hard to, to kind of get that energy or the idea about what they like and what they're into. And also, I just, I fell into writing kids books, uh, when Audie was born, but I always wanted to write grown up stuff. So, uh, the book I have coming out is a book of short stories. Um, at the moment it's called Smoke and, uh, it's really gonna, it's not a kid's book writer brand at all. So I, I, I don't know if people, I'm sure most people kind of wouldn't even put two and two together and go, oh yeah, she's a person who writes kids books, but, uh, it's very different. <laughs> it's more, more like me, which is kind of dark and depressing. and. <sighs> Um, you know, it's weird that I write kids books, because I'm not, I'm not a particularly kind of a kind of person. It's funny. I don't don't know how it happened. So these stories are um, I've been working on some of them, I would say for 20 years, just keep going back to them. And, and then I kind of finished it all and put it together um, as my thesis at UBC. And uh, yeah, and so now it's going to be published as a book, which, see, it's like getting my first book, first kids book, like, this is super exciting for me. And I am looking forward to this launch, you know, because it's the first.
0: This is what I was wondering, does this feel like a whole new thing, almost like a whole new career, a whole new approach, not just I've done these books and I'm doing another book. This is a completely, I've jumped the tracks. I'm on a completely different path.
1: Yes, I think so. I think it's hard, Uh, some people do it, but to write the kind of adult fiction I write and to also be known as a kids writer at the same time, I don't know if it would even sit very well. Um, I I sort of want to establish myself differently. And, you know, I've been publishing Comics for adults and some poetry, which I've kind of given up on, and I've been publishing short stories and magazines. So I've kind of been moving that way. It's uh, it's much harder. <laughs> it's much more of a process. You know, the hard thing.
0: In what can... way? What 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 do you find much more difficult about it?
1: Oh, just oh, well, there are so many more words. <laughs> you know, there are so many more words to look after. Kids' books for me, the difficulty is coming up with an original concept. Lots of people say, oh, anyone can write a kid's book. And that's sort of true, because they're usually 500 words, and they tell a pretty basic story. But coming up with a, a concept that someone else hasn't already done is really, really hard. Whereas with fiction, you can use the same concepts a lot. But it's really the way you're you're telling the story and dealing with the words. And for me, because my stories are auto fiction, for me, it's a lot of kind of processing and um, you know figuring things out, and uh, it's sort of a you know a bit of a psychological minefield at times. I was telling something the other day that um, I was saying how you know I was helping her with writing. She wants to write a kids' book, and I said, you know, mining your your feelings about being a kid and when you were a kid really important and i said you know my first book is really kind of it's really about abandonment so my mum died when i was six so my first book is really about abandonment i think and i said mm-hmm. so is the next one yeah so is the one after that i'm like oh my <laughs> god it's so <laughs> depressing
0: what happened next is produced and edited by me to let me know what you think of this podcast or to suggest a future guest, please go to the contact page at nathanwhitlock.ca. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukaszewski.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.